when I look back on my college career, I think the only thing that I really did right in college was get engaged to the right girl. Uh, I don't, and, and she's here this morning, and I'm glad that she's with me this morning. Uh, I think that was really one of the few good choices I think I made in, in college. As I look back on it, though, and we were looking at the baseball uh, video, it reminded me of a time when I did play baseball in college, and, uh, and I made one of those stupid choices. Um, some of you some on the WOW staff have heard me tell the story about when we went to play baseball, we traveled in two vans like the guys do. You know, you get in the two vans, and the coach and the assistant coaches on the way back from the team game would get in one van, and then I was, I was the captain, and I would drive the other van, and so all the guys would get in the van. We'd all pile in, all 20 of us, into one van. And in our college, it was so strict, you know, you couldn't do anything, so we, we would get lost on purpose, and you've, you've heard, me, heard me tell some of this. And uh, we would do that just, you know, to really, like, you know, have a great afternoon, like go to McDonald's without a chaperone or something. And um, so here we were. We pile into this van all together to, uh, to make a left turn when the coach went right so that we could spend some time alone as a team. And, and one time we were coming from Nashville back to Chattanooga, and we went over Mount Eagle, and, and there was, a, you know, the signs say truck ramp, truck, truck ramp, truck ramp. And, and all these guys started, and I'm driving, the, the president of the student body is on the, on the baseball team, Danny Smith, is sitting right next to me. The president of the college's son, uh, Steve Faulkner, is sitting right behind me, and, and all these guys start chanting, hit the ramp, hit the ramp, hit the ramp. And, you know, we're singing, we're, we're just having good, clean, you know, kind of like baseball kind of fun, you know. And, and these guys start chanting, hit the ramp, and these signs keep saying, runaway truck ramp, four miles, two miles, a mile, you know, 700 yards, and all this, and... And so finally, and I'm, and I'm cruising, it's back when speed limit was 70 miles an hour, and I thought, you know, that would be kind of fun. And it, it, does, it, does anybody know, do not know, if you do not know, you do not know what a truck ramp is? And you don't know what that is. You know, what it is, is it's this little path that kind of goes up the side of the hill and just dead ends. And it, it looks like it's a little road, and it's designed to stop a 60, you know, you know, ton truck that is out of control with no brakes. And so to do that, it's got to hit some pretty soft stuff. Well, I didn't think through all of that. And so they're yelling, hit the ramp, hit the ramp. And I hit the thing going 70 miles an hour. And, and we sunk. It's 20 feet deep in, in, in sand and pea gravel. And when you hit that thing going fast, it, you just immediately are buried down in the, in the middle of the stuff. And, you know, that was a shock to me. I thought it'd be fun. We'll drive out on the ramp, turn around, look over the hill, and and we'll drive back. And as soon as we hit it, you know, and the, the, the windows broke, the, the front end is demolished. It's, it's all, it's dark anyway. And so, I mean, stuff is just hitting. You know, we're all screaming, bodies, all 20 of us, no lie, all 20 of us, you know, you know the little space that's right under the front window, the dashboard? That's where all 20 of us were. You know, just, it, was, it was terrible. And of course, we played a, two games that day, so it even made it worse piled in that close. And so... We were in the van. It was a horrible, horrible experience, and I got into so much trouble at, at the college for demolishing this van and coming in at 4 o'clock in the morning. And of all the things, and that wasn't the worst part. This is the worst part, and this is the point of the, the whole story, is this. is Dan Smith, after this thing is all over, he's sitting there right in front you know, of, the, of the van with me, and he's chanting like everybody else. And, and Dan comes up to me afterwards and says, you know, Dave, puts his arm around me. And I think he's going to really give me some encouragement. And I think he meant to, but he looks at me and says, you know, Dave, I could have told you that would have happened. I'm saying, what a stupid thing to say now. You know, I hate that. Why didn't you tell me before it happened? And my college career sort of was like that, where I did dumb things one after another, and I would give anything. I would have given anything if somebody would just said, Dave, look, let me tell you, let me tell you how to do this right. And that's sort of what I want to do with you this morning. There is one part of my life 
that I never, ever had anyone tell me how to do it right. I just sort of did what came natural. Uh, sort of the way I went into golf. Two years ago, I picked up the game of golf, and I'd never golfed. I'd never watched golf, never played golf. My dad never played golf. My family never played golf. I'm from West Virginia. We don't even have enough flat land to play golf. And, and I'd never learned how to play golf. And I just did what, you know, I played baseball, and I swung a, a club like I would, you know, baseball. And I thought you just did it the same way. This week, I went to golf with our president, and he's sitting there watching me golf, and, he, you know, he gets a good kick out of the way I golf. And I think I go along just to make his day lighthearted, I believe. I'm not sure. So the first thing, first thing I do, I don't even know what to wear. So I, I get out of the car, and there's John. I'm at, John's, I'm at the house up there, you know, in this beautiful, you know, where, the, where Melinda lives in that big mansion. And I drove up there, and I think I'm dressed right. And I get out of the car, and John looks at me and goes, Hey, Dave, nice clothes, you know. I had the wrong clothes on, and uh, I didn't know how to write, wear the right clothes. And then, then I get to the golf game, and John's telling me, Dave, if you just do this different, and you do this different. And then finally he tells me, he said, Dave, if you, he said, where did you learn to putt? I said, I don't know where I learned to putt. I just, just putt. Of course, I was using the right club, which was encouraging. But, and he said, well, you know, if you just do it this way, you would do it better. And, and he showed me how to do it, and I started doing better. And I thought, why didn't somebody tell me that before? John, why didn't you tell me that before? I've golfed with you a lot of times. He said, well, because I always get a kick out of watching you play. And, you know. <laughs> and I thought, you know, if somebody would just tell me something sometimes, I, it would be so helpful. And one of the things that no one told me, ever told me, is how to close a chapter, one chapter of my life, to move on to another in a good way. No one ever talked to me about that. And I thought, you know, I wish somebody would have said something to me about that because that happens all the time in your life. You're about to do that right now. But this isn't going to be the only time, and it probably wasn't the first time, isn't the first time, and it's not going to be the last time. In fact, statistically, the first ten years you're out of college, if you're normal which we can discuss later. But if you're normal, if you're normal, you're going to change jobs at least six times that first ten years. Now think of that. The first ten years you're out of college, you're going to be, you're going to be changing jobs six times. You're going to close a chapter and you're going to move on to another one. You're going to do this all your life. Statistically also, before the age of 40, the people who are in the business of moving us, U-Haul and all these people, tell us that before the age of 40, a family moves on the average of once every three years. Now think of that. All your life, you're going to go through the process of closing a chapter in one, through one period of your life and moving to the next. You're going to do it in jobs. You're going to do it in college. You're going to do it in relationships. And some of you have <laughs> opened and closed a lot of chapters this year. Um, some of you are still trying to find the first book in the, in the first chapter. <laughs> Still, some of you are still in the preface, right, in the introduction. Uh, and you're going to do that. And you know if you've been through that experience that, that while people do it all the time and they do it in all sorts of circumstances, very, very few people do it well. I mean, the, in the papers in, in recent weeks, we've read about the scandal of, of Mayor Tom Bradley and his quarter-million-dollar trip to, to pump up you know, uh, tourism in, in L.A. And, of course, he was so pro- profound in his in his message to the rest of the world by telling them that not one tourist was shot during the previous riot. Now, that didn't make it... If you think about it, so what does that mean? Uh, does that mean that if you go downtown in this riot and wear a big sign that says tourist, uh, oh, wait, I'm sorry, I'm, don't shoot you, you know, or don't, don't burn your house down, you're a tourist. I mean, what a dumb thing to say. And he spent a quarter million dollars telling everybody that. And, and he is in the midst of controversy as he's closing down that chapter and moving on to the next one. And, and you've seen guys and gals 
move from one dating relationship to the next and it's not been good. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've failed at that, as I've failed at that. And you've seen people leave jobs and leave people violated and upset and discouraged and disoriented. And I've seen that. And you're going to face that circumstance all through your life. Those of you that are going into ministry, those of you that are youth ministry majors, uh, again, statistically, a youth pastor stays, and we would hope that this wouldn't be true of you, but normally we'll stay at a church three years and no longer. Well, think of how many times you will have the opportunity to move from one circumstance to another. A teacher doing the same thing. A business major doing the same thing. In fact, no matter what career you go into, you're going to do the same thing if you're a normal individual. And the other thing about that is that that happens. Not just happens all the time, but it happens under different circumstances. And that makes it tough. Sometimes it happens under good circumstances. Sometimes it happens under bad circumstances. Sometimes you close a chapter because it's your choice. Sometimes a chapter closes because someone made the choice for you. Sometimes a chapter closes and you knew it was coming. Other times a chapter closes and you had no idea this was going to happen. It just caught you off guard. And because of that, I think that I would this morning would like to offer you some biblical instruction on how to close a chapter in a good way. Because we do it all the time. It happens in different ways. And because very, very few of us do it well. Um, recent, uh, this week, last week, a friend of mine who's a pastor in the area was telling me about a church in this area that went through many weeks and months of calling a pastor and after they finally flew the, or moved the pastor and his family out to, to our valley and the pastor spent his first Sunday in the pulpit and they had this great celebration that we finally, after many weeks and months, called a pastor and the pastor's here and we're rejoicing in God and he's preached his first Sunday morning and, and they had this, you know, this welcoming celebration. And then Monday morning, right after that first Sunday in the pulpit, the janitor was going through the, the auditorium, found on the pulpit a letter from the pastor. He opens the letter, and the letter says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I should not be here. I've gone home. And moved. To, and he and his family went back to the Midwest. Man, very few people, even people that we would consider to be spiritually mature people, end chapters in a good way. And I think that's something that we need to think about. Something that we need to to focus upon. Now, to do that, what I'd like to do is to take you to two examples in the Bible, in the Old Testament. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Hold your finger in Deuteronomy 32 and then go to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. I want to show you five ways to end a chapter in a good way by showing you how two men in the Bible did that. And those two men, of course, Deuteronomy 32 would be Moses, and 1 Chronicles chapter 29 would be David. I believe that these two men offer us a great example as to how you and I can end a chapter in our life and move to the next one in a good way, in a way that God will be honored and glorified. Now, let's read both of those short passages, 32 verses 1 through 4, and then we'll turn over to chapter 29 of 1 Chronicles and read four verses there as well. Chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, Give ear, O heavens, this is Moses speaking, and he is coming to the end of his life. This is just prior to going to the promised land. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as droplets on the fresh grass, as showers on the herb. And this is what I want you to hear. He's standing before all the people and before God. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous 
and upright is he. Now turn, turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 13, where David is at the same period in his life, where he is closing down his leadership and it will be passed to another individual. Chapter 29, verse 10. So David blessed the Lord, standing before all the assembly, and said, Blessed art thou, O Lord of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, thine is the dominion, O Lord, and thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou dost rule over all. And in thy hand is power and might, and it lies in thy hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, O God, we give thanks to thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? This is right prior to building the temple as they've gathered the supplies just in the beginning of this chapter to do so. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from thee, and from thy hand we have been given thee. Principle number one. That is very obvious in both of these passages of Scripture. How do you close a chapter in your life and move to the next in a good way? Principle number one. Reaffirm in your heart who God truly is. Now, that's easy to say. But when you're closing a chapter and moving to a next one, that's a very, very hard thing to do. Because it's in the midst of that transition that it seems like everything in us wants to reflect upon issues related to me. And that's very common. Because as you close one chapter, whether it's a job or a relationship or a church or a college, you're, you're, you're prone to think a lot about yourself. And one thing that you face as you move from one chapter to the next is the real struggle that you want to know that when you move on, that you are loved. You know, I mean, that's normal. And sometimes, in order to really get that expressed to you, people will, and you will, and I will, present ourselves as a victim of circumstances, of people. And what happens in that, by saying, you know, by kind of painting ourselves as a victim of people and things and decisions, we get people to come around us, don't we? Oh, and put their arm around us. Well, you know, I love you. They, that person may not love you. Or, you know, I'm sorry you were treated that way. Or, or I'm sorry things went bad, but I love you. And that's very common. Another thing that we have to struggle through is not only wanting to be loved, but to be right in a decision. That's because we question it sometimes, because we're not sure we're making the right decision, and we know people around us question it. And so because of that, sometimes in order to sort of clarify the issue and to make it very sure and obvious that I'm right, we will take the spiritual high ground with an issue. That happens in dating. How many times I've heard a guy when he, he's been in my office to talk about breaking up with a girl and immediately takes the spiritual high ground and presents himself as making a very wise and godly decision, a decision that needed to be made to preserve his walk with God. The same thing happens when people leave jobs. The same thing happens when people leave churches. I mean, we want people to know that I made the godly and right decision, so sometimes we take the spiritual high ground. Another thing that we want to do is for people to really believe that we were important or sort of the, the, the kernel that kept everything together when we were there. And that's particularly true when it comes to jobs or, or even to colleges or to churches. And when I leave, what, sometimes what we do is we pronounce, we pronounce a woe on the people. You know, I'm... I don't really want to leave, and boy, I'm really sad to think what things are going to be like when I do leave. And we do that in dating, too, and you do that, where a gal will say, you know, I, I hung in there as long as I could with him and because, you know, I really wanted to see him walk with the Lord, but now that, you know, we broke up, I, I really don't think he's going to walk with God. 
And you really want people to think that, you know, you're loved, you are someone who's making the right decision, and you're someone that was very valuable to the enterprise. And you're always thinking about self. And I think it is very instructive to us that when Moses and David were coming to the end of a chapter in their life, where they had held very significant positions of leadership and influence, that they weren't thinking about themselves. Their thoughts immediately went to God. I'm leaving this period in my life. And as I'm doing that, I want my thoughts to be focused upon who God is and what God has done and what God will continue to do in my life, even though this change is taking place. And it's, it's really interesting that parallel to that, we find that when you focus upon God, you find that those people also are described as people who give thanks. And in the New Testament, the same thing is read. In, in Romans chapter 1, a person who acknowledges God is a person who gives thanks to God. And really, I think those two are basically interchangeable ideas. They're tantamount concepts. To acknowledge God and to focus upon God means to be the kind of person that realizes everything that comes to your life, whether it's good or bad, comes from the hand of God. The word praise and thanksgiving in the Old Testament is a very picturesque term. In fact, it really means it comes from the term yod or yod, which is the word hand, and it's yada. It's the word that means to stretch the hand forward to the heavens. Yada, to praise, to give thanks. And it's a very visible way of saying when I give thanks, I'm acknowledging that everything that happens to me, everything that is good, everything that is bad, ultimately, behind all events, stands God. And David and Moses wanted to acknowledge that before the people. And I think that they needed to do that, not only for themselves, but because the people needed to be reminded that even though these men were stepping down, and stepping down not in good circumstances in either case, that these men were not bitter. These men were not angry. These men didn't think for one moment that something happened in their life that somehow was out of the presence of God. That doesn't mean that they liked it all. It doesn't mean that they weren't confused. In fact, we read in the Psalms where David was very confused at times about what God was doing and where God was. But David always came back to this assurance. Everything that I am and everything that I do happens in the presence of God. God is God. And when you're going to close a chapter and move to another one, I think that's the first key principle. Reaffirm in your heart that God is sovereign and He is loving and He is in control. You may not understand that. You may not even desire everything that happens to you that comes from the hand of God. But ultimately, you can have peace and strength and stability because God's in control. The contrary to that, of course, is the person that you and I hate to be around. The person who, when they're in the process of leaving, is very bitter very vindictive, very angry, very derogatory in their comments. And, and none of us like that. And that person is not a thankful person. And the reason that person is not a thankful person is because they've taken their focus off of God and His control of their lives and placed it upon themselves and their own issues. Principle number one, reaffirm who God is. David and Moses reaffirmed the character of God in their own hearts. The second principle, this parallel to that, and both of these men do this, but particularly I think it's very clear how, how uh, Moses did this in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 2. Look at that. Just turn over one page. The second thing to do as you're closing a chapter and moving to the next is this. Not only reaffirm who God is, but to reaffirm who you are. In other words, make sure you take responsibility 
for what you should take responsibility for. Now, that's, that, again, everything in you is going to want you not to do that. But these two men, while they were not perfect men, they were men that walked with God, and as they looked back on their lives, they realized that there were things that happened to them. In fact, limitations occurred because of the things that they did that were wrong. And they weren't going to deny that. Not only did they not deny that in their own heart, they didn't deny that in the presence of God, and they certainly, as they were closing this chapter, were not going to deny that in the presence of these people. Chapter 31, verse 2, And he said to them, Moses speaking, I am 120 years of age today, and I am no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, You shall not cross this Jordan. And Moses was repeating in the ears of the people who he had led these many years this word, and that is, I am going to take responsibility for the problems, for my actions and the problems my actions cause. You know, and that is such a a simple but yet key issue when you close down a chapter. Isn't it amazing to you that when someone is leaving, when someone breaks up with a girl or someone leaves a job or someone leaves a church or something like that, you would think that they didn't do anything wrong? You would think that they never made any mistakes themselves? And then you get on the other side of the coin and you talk to the to the other person, the guy or the gal or the employer or the church members, and you find that they say they have the same story pretty much, except it's in going the opposite direction. The guy says, well, it wasn't me, it was her. And then you talk to the girl, well, it wasn't me, it was him. And, and we really have a real resistance to taking responsibility. I mean, we're, we kind of expect that in, in athletics sometimes, you know, where everybody's sort of blaming the other person. You expect that in politics, although it shouldn't happen. I mean, a great athlete won't take will take responsibility for the things that they contributed good and the things they contributed bad. And a mature person will do the same thing. Moses and David did the same thing. And as you're closing a chapter, let me just encourage you. One of the things I think that will give praise and honor and glory to God is to not or is to take responsibility for the mistakes you made and the problems they created. Because it's going to happen. And don't ignore that. Certainly people around you probably made mistakes as well. And certainly people around you caused problems as well. But there are things that you did that you should, shouldn't have done. There are things you should have done that you never did. And take responsibility for that. The third thing. Not only should we reaffirm who God is and reaffirm who we are in our weaknesses and our limitations and our sinfulness. Thirdly, back to First Chronicles chapter 29. Look what David does in this passage. In verses 16 through 19, listen to this. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build thee a house for, thy holy name, it is from thy hand and all is thine. Since I know, O my God, thou triest the heart and delightest in uprightness. I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. And so now with joy I have seen thy people who are present here and make their offerings willingly to thee. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of thy people and direct their heart to thee, and give, here's the key verse, to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, thy statutes, and to do them all, and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Principle number three, rejoice, genuinely rejoice, that God will continue to work after you're gone. That's a hard one. Because we are so selfish that we want, again, to believe that everything kind of rises and falls on us. And then when I leave, it's sort of like, it's sort of like when, you know, the little guy whose dad sponsors the Pee Wee baseball team. When I leave, not only do I leave, but the uniforms go too. I mean, you can't play when I leave because my dad owns the team. And we, we kind of like to think life works that way for us. We are so important 
that when I'm gone, all presence of godliness goes with me. Now, we don't say it that way, but you can see that happening when people express that. You see them, you see them indicating that when they're leaving a job. You see them express those thoughts when they leave a college. And how many times I've heard a student say, you know, boy, I just, I, I'm really, I don't know what God's going to do here when, when our class is gone. You know, and, and the thing that's so wonderful is they probably made a tremendous contribution to this class, to the college, as a class, and did great things. But should not think just because God accomplished great things in us that when we're gone, God will not continue to work. And David was very much committed to rejoicing in the hope and the belief and the promise that after he leaves, God's work will continue on. Principle number four. Not only rejoice that God's work will continue on, but listen to this one, it's related to that. Rejoice that those who follow you will accomplish greater things than you did. That was true of Moses with Joshua. As Joshua led them into the promised land, it was true of, of uh, David and Solomon and building the temple. And in most of your life, you'll experience that to be true as well. That when you move on, people coming behind you, well, not only will the work of God just maintain, but God's work will grow and become broader and deeper. At least that ought to be your prayer, oughtn't it? I mean, genuinely in your heart, when you leave this college, what you ought to be praying for is, you know, when I'm gone, it is my hope and prayer that when I leave my position as a student leader, when I leave my spot as a student member of this college, that someone will step into it, and I will hear back five years from now that there is a mighty work of God going on through this college, and I genuinely rejoice because of that. I don't feel jealousy. I don't feel envy. And the same thing should be true when you leave a job or when you leave, uh, break up in a dating relationship even. And that's really hard to do in that circumstance. But to genuinely desire for this person to continue to grow in the Lord even when you're not a part of their life in the way that you used to be. The perfect, I think David and obviously Moses are great examples of this, but I think we even got a, a, a really good real-life example on this campus of this. And we had him here on the platform a few, few months ago, and that's Dr. Duncan. Remarkable man. Think of what this man has experienced in the latter years of his life. The man came out here and, and, and put this college where it is. He bought the property. Then he stood there in the gap all the, through those many years as, and held this college together with just pure prayer and tenacity and, and just fortitude. And God blessed him. And he went through all of this beating and all this bumping and all this bruising and, and a lot of times in, in, in obscurity. People didn't realize just how significant really his contribution was and, and what this school would become someday. And then after all those years of getting beat up, he steps down from the presidency and John MacArthur steps in and the college just explodes. And God does things here that he had, he had never done, in a, at least in that, in many ways, that he, had, that he had never done before. And you know, you expect to be around Dr. Duncan and find a little bit of a, just a little bit, just a little bit of a twinge of jealousy there. I mean, you'd expect that, wouldn't you? You'd expect, you know, when you talk about how great John MacArthur is and what God has done through his ministry and leadership, you'd expect Dr. Duncan to at least take the conversation back to pre-John days, back to PD school days, PJ rather, pre-John. And he doesn't do that. The man is so committed to God's kingdom being built with or without him, under him or not under him, that when you spend time in his presence and talk about and rejoice on, over what God has done since he stepped down as president, Dr. Duncan is going to be right there with you 
cheering louder than anyone else. What a remarkable example for us. I mean, if it, you would think that the man, the man would be really hesitant to praise John MacArthur. And he doesn't. He's not at all. He's his greatest fan. And that's exactly what I think God would call us to do. Because all of your life, somebody's going to step in behind you and carry on what you started or maybe what you picked up. And when that happens, you're going to find it really hard to let go, number one, and number two, to have someone come in behind you and succeed. And for you to feel in your heart a real joy because God's work is growing. Yep. Guys, gals, that's, that's hopefully what you're going to be praying for and focusing on when you leave this college, you seniors. That someone will step in behind you and someone will step in as ASB president behind Mark Spanzel and will make what Mark Spanzel did look very small. And Mark should be the person, and I think he would be, because I know Mark, that would say, praise the Lord. Man, look what God is doing in this ASB president. And that someone will step into your spot in your class or in, or in majesty in your group or, or in, in an athletic team. And, and, and we will win the national championship on every sport. And, you know, we'll be, we'll be on, you know, be here on campus just talking about just how remarkable we are as athletes. And the ex-athletes of this college will be sitting there and go, praise the Lord. What a wonderful thing. And not feel within them this sense of jealousy and, and envy for what God is doing. Principle number four, rejoice that those who follow you will accomplish greater things. Principle number five is this. Offer prayer and genuine encouragement to those who follow you. Offer a prayer and genuine encouragement to those who follow you. God's work will continue on. God will hopefully use them in a way that He never used you. And because your heart is focused upon God and His sovereignty and His providence, and God being the one who ultimately chooses what will and will not happen, and because your heart is committed to seeing God's work move forward, when you leave a situation, whether it's a ministry, church, or a relationship, I think that your desire and focus and goal ought to be to offer that person genuine prayer and encouragement. And you know, so, so infrequent, that happens so infrequently. It is so common that we don't even really flinch at it anymore. It's so common for someone when they're leaving a situation as an employee to kind of, again, pronounce woes upon the, the job or the business or the ministry. That is so, so common. And they sort of, it's almost like they take poison and they just, they just spray it over everybody. And one of the things I think they're struggling with is, again, is that they want you as their friend to think that their decision's a good one. And, and really, and this is the thing that's hard to understand, it may be a good one for them to leave, but it doesn't mean it's a good one for their friends to leave. And I face, you know, I face that circumstance. When Kim and I were in Iowa and I was on staff in a church there for several years, we had very, some very close friends and when I left, I felt I did need to leave under circumstances that, that were biblical. And it was hard for me not to just turn around to my friends. And at times, I'm, I know I failed at that and wanted to say to my friends, well, look, you need to leave too. I mean, this is a wicked place. I mean, Ichabod's been painted over the door. And you've had that experience. It's such an ugly thing, isn't it? Such a discouraging thing. And rather than that, I think what God would call us to do, as David and Moses did, is to turn to the people and say, I want you to be strong. I want you to have courage. I want, you, I want to, you to know that I will continue to pray for you, that God will be with you, and that God will continue to be real to you, and that your fellowship will be sweet, and that your ministry will be advancing. I mean, the, the, the beautiful picture of that, of course, is found in 
in Joshua chapter 1, and you don't need to turn there, but in Joshua chapter 1, as Moses is handing the baton to Joshua, all through that passage, Moses is saying to him, and it is my prayer that you will walk in the strength and in the courage of God. It is my prayer that God will make Himself known to you. It is my prayer that you will have moral and, and spiritual strength. I mean, He was very genuinely encouraging to the people who followed Him. And I think that's principle number five. Now, let me close, let me close with these two points. Let me tell you two things. Under two circumstances, as a final point, not to move on. I'm telling you how to move on. But the last two things I want to say to you is there are two circumstances that I think that you will find yourself in that you shouldn't move on. This is circumstance number one. Don't move on if you're doing so to get out from under pressure. Years ago, one a man did tell me and counseled me. He said, Dave, never go run away from something. Always run to something. And I think there's some real wisdom in that. Isn't it interesting that we realize in our, in our exegesis, and our exposition, in our theology, that the one thing that God brings to our life that forms within us the character of His Son more completely than any other thing is trial. I mean, we, know that the, we know that James 1 says that. We know that that's found all through the Gospels. We know that the Apostle Paul talked about that. We know that in 2 Corinthians, Paul talked about that through the whole book of how God used pressure and trial in adverse circumstances, to forge in Him the character of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And it's even more than just a theological theory. You and I, on the backside of pressure and trial, have stood and turned around and rejoiced that we went through it. Because after we're through it, we've seen what God has done in our lives. But yet, while those two things are true, theologically we know it's a great thing, practically when we're through it, we look back and we, we really thank God for it. As we face it in the midst of it, or the prospect of it coming, you and I run from it like a plague. We don't want it. We don't desire it. When we pray, normally we get in our little small groups on the wing or in our, with our friends and we pray that you and I, that God will prevent me from having a hard time or keep us from having a hard time and that we will get out from under pressure. We so much want to avoid trial. And yet we know that theologically it's the hand of God. We know in our own experience that God has used it so many times already but we just have a hard time with it, don't we? In fact, we struggle with it so much that when we're in it, it's almost like it's American, isn't it? It's sort of like being a part of a, a labor union. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't have to take this from my job. I'll, I'll go get another job. There's something American about moving and getting out from under pressure. After all, isn't the great, the great goal of all middle-class America comfort? Move away from discomfort? Build a life that's comfortable? How in the world can I sit here and be uncomfortable? and under pressure, and under trial. Let me remind you again. One circumstance to never move, one circumstance you're facing you should never move under, is the circumstance of trial and pressure. When God brings discontentment in your life, let me just frame it for you this way. When God brings discontentment in your life, what is happening is your circumstances and your heart don't match. Right? I mean, that's, that's the basic definition of discontentment. What I desire and what I experience aren't tracking together. They're, they're somehow they're, off, they're out of step with one another. And what you and I want to do is the, is the American thing, and what do we want to do? Here's my heart, here's my circumstances. I want to take my circumstances and match my heart. Right? I'm going to change my circumstances. And clearly from the Scriptures, what does God say He wants to do? 
when your heart, who you are in your heart and your soul and your character doesn't match your circumstances, what is it that God is wanting to move? You and me. And God's saying, you know what I want to change? You is what I want to change. And one of the things I think that you and I do as good middle-class Americans is that when we face trial and pressure, our first instinct is to get out from under it. Rather than sitting and really reflecting upon, where is God in this? What is God trying to do in my life? And sometimes He may not answer that question. He may not tell you right then. He may not tell you ever in this life what He was trying to do. I had a situation in college happen to me. I, I worked for a, a company in Georgia, and I went in one day out of the blue. I worked all summer for this company and worked through a, a school year with this company. Uh, the guy's name that hired me, the guy's name was Bill that hired me. He was a Christian, uh, a deacon in our church. And one day he called me into the office and, and right in front of everybody in a staff meeting, fired me. I had no idea that it was coming. I mean, he didn't just fire me. He fired me with anger. And he didn't just do it with anger. He did it in front of everybody. And made me leave right then. He said, you're out of here. Leave. Get off my property. And I left. And to this very day, I have no idea why that happened. To this very day, I have no idea what was going on. And sometimes you don't get those kinds of answers. But I think you need to look to God and say, God, I'm feeling pressure. And I don't want to move myself out from under your hand prematurely. If there is something in me, and I may not know what it is, and I may never know what it is that you're trying to accomplish, but I do know this, that pressure is one of the most powerful tools in your hand to forge me into the character of your son, Jesus Christ. Don't move if you're running from pressure. And of course, the obvious reason for that as well is that because wherever you go, your sin's going to go with you. And if you start a pattern in your life that every time I feel uncomfortable, I'm, I'm bailing, rather than to say, God, where are you? Why are you doing this? Then you're, going to, you're never going to be the person that God intends you to be. The second circumstance never to move under is this. Never move if there are unresolved issues in your life. Don't leave with unresolved issues. It's very clear in, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew, Christ says, If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, not that you've done something against them, but they even have something against you. Or maybe you've done something, they didn't like it. Leave your offering there before the altar and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Christ is making it very clear that you and I have the tendency to just think, you know, and look what doesn't happen in this passage. You know what doesn't happen? This isn't brought to his mind maybe by the prompting of the Holy Spirit and the person is called by God to just say, okay, stay here, repent of that, and continue your worship. That's what we want to do. We know there's something unresolved. We know we did something that we shouldn't have done. And then we come before God and in conviction and, and, and the burden of that comes back to our mind and our hearts and we think, well, God, I want to confess that sin and just and move on. And what God calls us to do is to resolve that. And there are many things that I think that we leave unresolved. And Scripture would call us, as much as within the power of us to do so, to be at peace with people. Seniors, you're, you're moving on, particularly. And some of you know that you're not coming back. Maybe you're transferring. Maybe you're not able to come back because of finances. And the thing that I would leave you with and implore you to do is not to leave with issues unresolved. Because, really, no one ever totally closes a chapter, do they? You never do that. 
I was at a ball game the other day, one of my, uh, Nate, Nate's ball game, and a lady was sitting there in the stands reading a book, and she was telling me, I said, well, is this a good book? She said, no, it's a terrible book. And I, she said, I'm in chapter 7, and the author acts like nothing happened in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. He just completely ignores the previous chapters. It's the worst book I've ever read in my life. So you can't write a book and do that. And, and you're right. That's ridiculous. You can't just act as though what happened before didn't take place and then start over in chapter 7. And life doesn't work that way either. You can't leave here and say, well, you know, I did leave things unresolved and there were things that I should have done that I didn't do and things that I did that I shouldn't have done and I'm just going to start all over again and completely ignore it. Even though that I know that I sinned against some people and never took care of that issue. What I want to encourage you to do is, is not only to not do that here, never do that. Because the dynamics of those issues will go with you. And those are things that you need to take care of and to address and to pursue. I got a letter this week, and this is one of the, this last week, because it's Monday, this last week. And this is what kind of gave me encouragement to speak on it this morning. A student who three years ago was here at the college and now is a missionary on the mission field. I opened the, you know, I get those little, you get those little international envelopes, you know, they're envelope letter all in one. And I knew it, was, knew it from overseas somewhere, and I opened the thing up. The very first sentence, I repent of my sin and went on to describe what he had done when he was here. And he says, I praise God that finally a clear conscience is more important to me than my reputation. And I have confessed and dealt with his sin and I, Dave, I want to resolve it with you in the college. And I thought, what a miserable thing the student has been through. I mean, I was rejoicing. I thought, this is great. But you know that every single day of his life that he's been on the mission field for the last three years he has been confronted with that sin that he never resolved. And now, under the pressure and the burden of his conviction, he's finally dealing with it and is just feeling such great freedom and rejoicing over it. Don't do that. Our, our hope for you is that when you leave here, you're going to leave here a person, a vessel that is fit for use for the Master. You've been equipped, you've been trained, you've been encouraged, you've been prayed for, you've been taught... You've been preached to. But we cannot do one thing. And that is we can't resolve the issues of sin in your life. This time of the year we're hearing all about that kind of stuff. And we're dealing with a lot of that right now. And the thing that is so bad about that, you know what the worst thing I think for you to happen in your life? Is for you to not be confronted with your sin. The worst thing that could possibly... I mean, it always feels like the worst thing that could possibly happen is you get found out. But you know the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is for you to get away with it. And that's, that's what I encourage you as friends to one another to confront each other. It's not a loving thing to ignore it and, let them get, and to let them think, you know, I can sin and not stand accountable for this. I can sin and not resolve it. If you love your friend, you will help them learn the most valuable lesson in life, and that is you've got to take responsibility for your decisions. And I'm going to love you so much that I'm going to step in. If you won't resolve it, I'm going to step in and help you resolve this issue. And there is a teacher, there's an administrator, there's a student that you know you have sinned against. And I'm going to help you resolve that issue. Um, let me close with this illustration because this happened to me this last two weeks ago. Several years ago, an individual came to me and said, Dave, I want to offer you a part-time job. And I said, I don't want a part-time job. I've got a great job. My job is a job and a half at the college. He said, no, this is a part-time job. I said, well, thank you. No. 
He said, Dave, I've talked to people. He said, I don't know you, but I know a lot of people who do know you, and they tell me that you're the person for this job. And I said, man, that's an honor, I, and tell those friends of mine, thank you, but I'm not looking for a part-time job. He said, Dave, but this job only takes 10 hours a week. And I said, well, 10 hours a week isn't a lot, but you know, I've got two kids, a family, and a job, and ministry, and I don't think I could squeeze out 10 hours. And so we're on the phone. He said, well, Dave, he, calls me, he keeps calling me back, and he's not giving up. And he said, Dave, he said, this job only takes 10 hours a week, and your starting pay for the first six months is $100 an hour. And he said, after the first six months, we'll pay you $200 an hour. Well, I suddenly, I mean, the will of God suddenly became clear. I mean, I mean, it's just, it's like, it was as though I was having an epiphany, you know, that God was staying over, Christ over my shoulder and said, thou fool, take the job, you know. And of course, of course, when I got off the phone later, it was my wife. But, any, but I mean, but, I mean, 10 hours a week, $200 an hour. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, mm, you know, I'm not too good at math, but, you know, I mean, that's a lot of money. It's over $100,000 just for 10 hours. So I said, okay, well, look, I don't need a job, don't want a job, don't think i got time for a job and enjoy what I do and don't know if I can squeeze it in, but, you know, I mean, hey, I don't want to, you know, stop short the hand of God for $100,000 come and talk to me. So, so he did. And, and he came and came to the campus, actually, and, start, and talked to me about a job. And this man, who was at that time a kind of a low, kind of a low-level administrator in this company, um, was not someone who really had been through this process probably at all before, and did not handle me very well at all. He didn't. Ha- he promised me things that they never delivered on. He said he would do things and didn't do them, and and would would leave open-ended uh, discussions open-ended, promises open-ended, left me in ambivalence. Uh, he really didn't handle it well. And I don't know about you, but if someone you know, it's not every day someone offers me $100,000, and when he did that, I was pretty upset. I mean, I thought, you know, I mean, I didn't want the job, but my goodness, you're seeking me out, and I mean, we weren't really planning on getting the job, but we had picked out a house. I mean, you know, it's all those kind of things. And I thought, you, had, you all at least have the decency to handle this in the right way, in a business-like way, and he didn't. And I got really upset about it. And there are different times that socially I saw the guy later and, and could feel the kind of the tug in my heart to really kind of let him have it, and I didn't. I said, you know, that hurt. He didn't handle it well, but I'm not going to respond in like kind. I'm going, to, I'm going to try to be a gracious person and give this guy the benefit of the doubt. Recently, I was invited to go to a lunch with a president of a corporation that is the president of the corporation this guy worked for and had no idea that this guy would be there. And he was. And this president of this corporation is offering to help the Master's College at the tune of giving us what amounts to about $180,000. That's a lot of money. And this president of this company is wanting to, to help us. And I'm sitting there across the table talking to the president of this company. And, and then as he's talking through this thing, he says, and the person that's going to head this up is this individual. And it's the individual that, you know, I really had some strong feelings about, but didn't express them. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, here we are, we're in this process. I never knew this was going to happen down the road. And God brought this circumstance back to me. And I was just thinking, thank God that I was sitting at this lunch and not keeping my eyes down on the table and on my salad because I was embarrassed about the unchristlike way or sub-biblical way I'd handled the previous circumstance. And I could look at the guy in the face and think, you know, I have nothing to be, I have nothing to be ashamed about. And just think of what that had been like had I blown that circumstance. Now, I chose to give you the last illustration, one that I handled well, <laughs> because there are fewer uh, there's actually a lot more that I've really blown. But I really want you to see 
that your future, to a great degree, depends on how you close the current chapter in your life. You want God's blessing? Walk with God today. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we love you and we want to continue to enjoy our fellowship with you and, Lord, to know what it means to be a servant, an instrument, a tool in your hand. And, God, to continue to be that person, we need to be willing to transition from one period of our life to the next in a way that gives you honor. And, God, when that happens and in the future days when you sometimes revisit those issues in our lives, Lord, that we can look in people's eyes with boldness and without shame because we knew that we were committed to your honor and to your praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.